So glad that y'all are here tonight. I know some of y'all haven't been able to make it for the last few weeks because we've been, we've been meeting on Tuesday. So welcome back to Monday night. It feels good to be back. Um, I'll tell you this. Uh, several years ago, when my son Noah was one and a half, my wife and I made one of the greatest mistakes we've ever made in parenting, and it was this. We introduced our son to the TV show Barney. All right. Anyone familiar with Barney? Anyone do that back in the day? Okay, I judge you. Anyway, um, we introduced Noah to Barney, and it was, it was probably the greatest prank that I ever played on myself, because the way that things work with little kids is uh, when they get attached to something, that is all that they want, and Noah fell in love with Barney, and so I had the pleasure of learning every word to every song that Barney sang. It was when it was on the TV in the morning, it was on the TV in the car on road trips, and so every moment of every day, even if Barney wasn't on TV, he was in my mind tormenting me <laughs> as I worked. And so this is, uh, my, my son Noah began this relationship with, with Barney, and it was, it was really interesting just how Barney kind of took over his Life. I remember um, when Noah would hear Barney come on the TV, the when that would come on the TV, my son Noah would go, Marnie, yay, Marnie. And then he would walk up the TV and he would lean into the TV because that's how Noah gave hugs, is he would just lean his body. So he would go and he would hug the TV. There would be mornings where my wife and I would be in bed listening to the baby monitor, wondering when Noah was awake, and then sometimes the first word out of his mouth, we would be just listening, and we would hear, Marnie, and we're like, is Barney in his room? Because he said that like he sees him, and that's terrifying. Catherine, go check, all right? If he's in there, call somebody. I mean, Barney... He was the man in my son's Noah in my son Noah's life. I mean, uh, Barney. Uh, he knew Barney's name, and this is no joke. He knew how to say Barney's name before he knew how to say some of his own grandparents' names, and that's never a good thing with the grandparents. But uh, my son Noah, his mind was consumed with Barney. His mood was impacted by Barney. His heart was stirred up by Barney, and his needs were met by Barney. Let's just call it what it was. Uh, Noah worshipped Barney, all right? Barney was God in Noah's life. And um, just observing my son, uh, observing my son just kind of affirmed something to me that I already knew to be true, and it's this. We are wired to worship. We are. We are absolutely wired to worship. Um, we don't have to learn how to worship. I didn't have to sit Noah down and be like, okay, if you ever encounter this big, weird, purple guy, then what you need to do is let him consume your thoughts and stir up your heart, and you need to give all of your time, attention, and affection to this Barney, Barney purple character. So there was never this moment where Noah saw Barney on TV and was like, this is the man daddy's been talking about. Now I do what he told me to do worship. No, it just came naturally. 
we are wired to worship because our minds long to be consumed by something. Our souls yearn to be satisfied by something. And our hearts crave being filled by something. We are all wired to worship. And if you don't believe me, all you need to do is be a fly on the wall at a T-Swift concert because you will see worship. You will. We are wired to worship. Now, here's the interesting thing with my son Noah. Noah hit a point in his life, praise God for it, where, where Barney just didn't do it for him anymore. It just wasn't the same. It wasn't as satisfying. It, it wasn't as fulfilling. And so Noah moved on. And throughout the course of his life, he's kind of jumped from thing to thing. And so there's been one thing that he's gotten really attached to. At one point, it was Thomas the Train, and then he moved on from that, and he was hooked on Cars, the, the movie Cars, and Lightning McQueen was the jam, and he was all about that. And then he moved on from that to Monsters, Inc., and he's just kind of bounced around from thing to thing. And it shows me something about ourselves. There is this longing in us to worship, but if we don't find the right place or person to receive our worship, then we can go through these motions that lead to feeling unsatisfied. And when I think about who we are as people, it doesn't matter whether you are religious, spiritual, or not. Every single one of us longs for the same thing. Every single one of us longs for a life that is truly satisfying and fulfilling, a life that's full of pleasure and goodness and peace and love. We all want that. But you need to know if you're ever going to glimpse a life that is truly satisfying and fulfilling, it has everything to do with where you direct your worship. Colossians 1.16 puts it very clearly. It says, we have been created by Jesus and for Jesus. So put these things together. We have been created by Jesus. And so Jesus is the one who wired us to worship. But we've also been created for Jesus. That means Jesus is the one where our worship should truly find fulfillment. So when we go looking for someone or something else to give us what only Jesus can give us, that's when we find ourselves in this, these motions that end up being meaningless, unfruitful, and unsatisfying. And so tonight, as we step back into the book of Revelation, we're going to look at chapters 4 and 5, and it is going to write our worship. It's going to zero us in on the one and only one who is deserving of all that we are. And in turn, it leads to fullness of life. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me tonight to Revelation chapter 4. That's where we'll start. Revelation chapter 4. This is your first time with us this semester. We have been uh, moving through the book of Revelation, and the first couple weeks were kind of the normal stuff. We're all ready to get to the stuff that makes our heads explode. Um, tonight is kind of one more night. It's, it's not normal uh, at all, but next week is where we're really going to get into the, to the freaky stuff. So um, feel free to come back. All right, here we go. If that's not a plug, 
four vertical. Here we go, Revelation chapter 4. I just want to read you the entire chapter. It's 11 verses. I want to let the scriptures just kind of do the talking before I say anything. So I want you to just zero in. If you want to close your eyes so that you can just kind of begin to visualize what's going on in the throne room of heaven, you can do that. Here we go. Revelation 4, verses 1 through 11, it says this. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne... On each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed And were created. This is the the throne room of God. John the Apostle gets a vision from Jesus Christ. And in this vision, Jesus invites him to come up and to get a new perspective in which he sees what is happening in God's throne room. Now, I want to start by simply introducing the different characters that we see in the throne room, okay? Because that's some of the questions that we have is what's up with all of the eyes because that's kind of weird, all right? So what's going on there? Uh, Let's just introduce some of the characters, okay? The first one is found in Revelation chapter 4 verse 2. It says, "Um, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, okay? There's a throne, one seated on the throne. Who is the one that's seated on the throne? This is God the Father, And we know that it is God the Father because in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus introduced God the Father as the one who is and was and is to come. And right here in verse 8, we see the 24 elders, or I'm sorry, the living creatures crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's the first person in the throne room. It is God the Father. Then in verse 5, it says this. It references the seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, um, it lists out seven different virtues of the Holy Spirit. And seven, in the book of Revelation, um, in the Bible, it really symbolizes completion or perfection. And so the seven spirits allude to the perfect work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now let's get to those four creatures. Okay, those four creepers, I mean creatures. It says this in uh, verse six. That's really not funny when you're talking about these guys. Okay, it says this. Um, It says, and around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. First living creature like a lion. Second living creature like an ox. Third living creature with the face of a man. The fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Okay, here is the bad news for you tonight is that no one can say with certainty who these guys really are. And so if you go and read commentaries, and I have read multiple commentaries trying to figure out who are these people, no one can say with certainty who they are. I mean, people hypothesize different things about these guys. So there's several different explanations. For example, uh, the church fathers saw them as representing the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, Another possible explanation is that they they represent characteristics of God, like um, courage is the lion, patience is the ox, there's intelligence, sovereignty. Maybe they represent characteristics of God. Another explanation is that these four creatures represent the whole of creation, and these are creation's finest, but they represent all of creation. We're really not sure. We can't say with certainty, but here's what we can say, okay? What we can say is that these four beings combine the the cherubim in Ezekiel 1 and the seraphim in Ezekiel 6. We kind of see both of their qualities showing up in these four characters. And I, I don't have time to take you to Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6, but if you want, you can see kind of those two coming together. So since these creatures are nearest to the throne of God and helping lead worship in the throne room of God, here's what I do think we can say with certainty. I think we can say that they are most likely leaders of the heavenly court. And they represent the highest order of celestial beings in heaven. It's as far as I can get you with the four, the four uh, living creatures, okay? Then the other characters in chapter 1 are the 24 elders. It says in verse 4, it says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments and golden crowns with golden crowns on their heads. Bad news again, no one can say with certainty who these guys are. Okay? And again, people have suggested different explanations, and I'll just give you, um, I'll just give you one. Um, some people will say that the 24 thrones are, is a symbolic number representing uh, the 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament and then the 12 apostles from the New Testament, okay? So they represent believers from all time. That might be right. We don't know. Some people I read, um, very godly men, they said with certainty, these are referring to human beings, These are referring to human beings potentially who have already gone to heaven and they are receiving their rewards. Other people said emphatically, I think that these are angelic beings, okay? We just don't know. We can't say with certainty. There's a good chance. Um, Like if I were to pick one right now, 
I would probably say that I think that they're a ruling class of heavenly beings who encircle the throne and lead worship. But I don't know. The good news is that I don't think it matters as much who they are as much as it matters what they are doing. And that's what you have to become comfortable with in the book of Revelation, is that there's, you're not going to be able to tie this book up in a bow. You're not going to be able to look at all of the different symbols, all of the different figures, and say with certainty, this is what this means. This is who this is. But what you can do is pull back and see what God, from Jesus to an angel, to John, is trying to tell us. Okay, so those are the characters in Revelation chapter 4, okay? Now we kind of step in, and there's a few things that I want to pull out of this chapter and the next chapter, which is going to write our worship. And, to, and it, they're gonna, these things are going to direct us to the one and only one who can give us what we truly want, which is fullness of life first thing that we see from Revelation chapter 4 is that God wants us to see him even though we can't see him. Let me say that one more time. God wants us to see him even though we can't see him. I think one of the hardest aspects of the Christian faith is summarized in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith and not by sight. Isn't that the struggle for so many of us? If I could just see God. If I could just see him, if he would just show up, then it would make it a lot easier for me to believe in him or trust him or follow him. Like if you're skeptical here, isn't that one of the things that might hold you back because you need the concrete physical evidence if God would just show himself. If you're a Christian, then one of the things that might hinder you from real traction is the fact that it's by faith and not by sight. It is a challenge to walk by faith and not by sight. But in the midst of walking by faith instead of sight, God has revealed himself to us and his desire is that we see him even though we can't see him. There's several ways, just in this chapter alone, where God has pulled back the curtain for us to see who he is. So let me just pull some things out for you, and I'm going to rattle through these quickly. Uh, honestly, I could do a talk on every single one of these things that God reveals, but we don't have time for that. So I'm going to leave it to you to kind of take it and filter it through your life and see how it applies to you. Let me just walk you through some of these things. Number one, God wants us to see that he is king. We already saw that there is a throne in the throne room and one seated on the throne. Okay, so just to fill in what it's saying, it's saying that there is one seated on the throne. So we have to think about the fact that this is a throne that's in heaven, which means that it is a throne that is above any other throne in the world. This is the throne of heaven, which means whoever sits on this throne has complete right uh, to rule, has complete sovereignty over all things. And it says that there is one seated on the throne. For a ruler to sit means that he is actively ruling. He is actively ruling. And God is actively sitting on the throne, ruling and 
reigning. Something in your heart might sometimes say, where is God and why doesn't God do something? You always have to remember, just because you can't see God doing something doesn't mean God's not doing something because he is in heaven, seated on the throne, exercising his authority over all things because he has the throne that is above every other throne. Number two, God wants us to see that he is truly beautiful. You look at verse three. It says, he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So the the picture that we get here is one, and I could go through and I could unpack what each of these different jewels means, but the idea here is that, that God, as he sits on his throne, is surrounded by brilliant light. He's, he, he emanates magnificent beauty. He's surrounded by brilliant light, and that is very congruent with the rest of Scripture. If you go back to Exodus and you look at when Moses would go up the mountain to meet with God, he would come back and his face would be shining so brightly that he would have to put a cover over his face because he was freaking the people out. Because his experience with God was one of encountering marvelous light. You look at, um, you look at Jesus, when he, uh, at his transfiguration, it said, it says in Matthew 17, 2, that his face shone as bright as the sun. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 that God dwells in unapproachable light. This is our God, one that is magnificent and beautiful. And he's so beautiful that our feeble human bodies cannot, um, cannot, um, we can't deal with all of the beauty that truly comes from God. It's like trying to look at the sun in the middle of the day. You just can't do it. You have to look away. God is that beautiful and he wants us to see that. God wants us to see, and this one's going to sound a little bit weird, but God wants us to see that he is terrifying. And that sounds weird, but look at what I'm talking about. It says this. In verse 5, it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits. This takes us back to the Israelites' encounter with God when he, his presence had descended upon Mount Sinai. Listen to what the Israelites' experience was in Exodus 19. It says this, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Exodus 20, verses 18 and 19 says this, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. You know what they're saying? They're saying, you know what? We heard God speak to us once, and we had a near-death experience. If he speaks to us again, we might not be as lucky. So Moses, you go talk to him. Good luck with that. And then you come back and report, and we'll be here listening. 
God wants us to see that he is truly terrifying, yet the author of Hebrews says that we can boldly approach the throne throne of grace. So this is pretty amazing that we have a God who is infinitely beautiful, reigning on the throne, terrifying, yet we can boldly approach him. I'll just tell you this, there's some mornings where all I have to do is I enter God's presence to pray with him. All I have to remind myself is God if you were just to speak audibly to me right now, it might kill me. That's how great you truly are. And I have the privilege of speaking to you and hearing from you through your word. God wants us to see that. He wants us to see that he is holy. What did the four living creatures cry out? They cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. What does it mean for God to be holy? I think our tendency is to define it as being perfect or pure, and it is that, but it's so much more than that. God's holiness is what all of his other attributes fall under. Holiness is what gives his other attributes their force behind them because his holiness refers to everything about him that is so different from who we are. It refers to his otherness. It's what makes God, God. It's what makes us able to say there is only one God and we are not him. It's what puts his power and his wisdom and his grace and his love and his justice on a whole nother level than anything we could ever conjure up in our own lives. God wants us to see that he is eternal He's referred to as the one who was and is and is to come. He wants us to see that he is eternal. He was here long before we got here and he'll be here long after we're gone. You think about the timeline of eternity. You think about the timeline of eternity and what your life represents on his timeline. Your life, my life, is just a microscopic speck on the timeline of eternity. So if you ever buy into the lie that God isn't relevant or he isn't important, you need to know that you have lost perspective. Because what you're saying is God, who is eternal, isn't relevant to my speck. And what you're saying is um, God doesn't fit into my small microscopic existence. No, it's not a matter of God fitting into our speck. It's about figuring out how our speck fits into his eternity because he's eternal. God wants us to see that he's the creator and sustainer of all things. Look at what they say in verse 11. They say, Worthy are you, O Lord, in God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You have to remember, you exist because he thought you up. How many days you have on the earth have been defined by him and only him. So he doesn't exist for you, you exist for him. He's the creator and sustainer of all things, okay? So that's just a glimpse. God wants us to see him even though we can't 
truly see him. And this is the great news about Christianity, is because to step into Christianity is not really um, stepping into blind faith, and it's really not that big of a leap of faith, because God has allowed us to see him. That's the first thing I want you to see, is that God wants us to see him even though we can't see him. And here's the thing, here's the second thing we see from this chapter. Cool. Second thing we see is this, the natural response to seeing God is worship. That's it, the natural response to seeing God is worship. Four living creatures and the 24 elders who live in the presence of God see him clearly and worship him passionately. When it referred to the four living creatures saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, it says that they do that day and night. And then it says anytime they do that, then the 24 elders fall down worshiping him. So if they're doing that day and night, and the 24 elders do that anytime they do that, that means you have the 24 elders and the four living creatures constantly, perpetually worshiping God because that's the natural response to seeing him is worship. So just to be clear, worship isn't a ritual that we participate in at church or vertical. Worship is a response with our life to seeing God. So worship really isn't about a song that we sing. It's possible for us to sing worship songs without ever worshiping God. Worship isn't a ritual, it is a response to sing him. Paul puts it this way, here's what worship is, Romans 12, 1, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's saying in view of God's mercies, in view of God's mercies, having seen God, who he is and what he has done, because you have seen him, you worship. What does it look like to worship? It means you put your entire being on the altar as an, as an offering and a sacrifice to God. All of you becomes his. That's worship. So, watch this, don't miss this. If worship is the natural response to seeing God, then a lack of worship simply means that there is a lack of sight. Does that make sense? If there is a lack of worship in your life, it is because there is a lack of sight in your life. Let me explain it this way, guys. If, uh, if someday you get married and you ask me to officiate your wedding ceremony, then, um, guys, there's going to be the chiming of the hour, and then you and I and all your groomsmen, we're going to walk out, and we're going to stand there. Then all the bridesmaids are going to make their way down the aisle, and after the last bridesmaid makes their way here, some of you, got, you bridezillas are just like, uh-huh, yes, okay, no, that's wrong. That's not how I would do it anyway. Okay, the bridesmaids come down. After the last one gets down, they're going to close those back doors. When they close those back doors, guys, I'm going to turn to you and I'm going to say, when they open those doors, you get where you can see. Because what you need to know is when those doors open, it's going to be the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Okay, this girl just spent all day getting ready for you. Okay, that's the only time she's going to spend all day for you. Okay, when those doors open, it's going to be the most beautiful thing you've seen, so you get where you can see, because when the doors open, all of these yahoos are going to stand up and try and get in your way. 
And if you don't get where you can see, you might have to settle for looking at Uncle Bill instead of looking at your bride. You get where you can see. The reality, the reality is that every single day there are hundreds of distractions that are standing up trying to get in our way from seeing Jesus Christ. And if you are not intentional and you don't make it a point to get where you can see, you're going to begin to settle for Uncle Bill. You have to get where you can see. What that means is if, if busyness is beginning to crowd out God in your life, you're going to have to be intentional. You're going to need to go for a walk with God so you can remember who he is as the creator and sustainer of all things. Put on some worship music and begin to worship. Whatever you need to do, get away with him. Spend time soaking in his word. But you have to get where you can see. And then I'll just say this. I want you to ask yourself these questions in your own heart right now. What do you talk about all the time? What do you find yourself thinking about constantly? What causes you a lot of stress and worry? What stirs the affections of your heart? If something comes to mind, it's possible that you are settling for Uncle Bill when Jesus, in all of his glory, all of his beauty, is revealing himself to you. If you've settled for Uncle Bill, what you're saying is, Uncle Bill, I believe, is more beautiful and more satisfying than God can be. What's happened in your life is that you've allowed an idol to step in and replace God. That's what it is. It's called idolatry, where you've taken a gift from God, whether it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or your grades or a job or whatever it is, a a student organization or an event with that student organization. You've taken a gift from God and you've turned it into God. So one of the best things that you can do tonight if God's bringing something to mind is, is number one, repent. Confess it to God and just say, God, I want to go a different way. I want to put you back on the throne. I want you to be the one who receives all of my worship. And then you receive his grace and forgiveness. You let it cover over you so you don't walk out of here in shame. Now you set your eyes on Jesus and you begin to move forward. Get where you can see. So the first thing we get from this passage is that um, God wants us to see him even though we can't see him. The second thing is this, is the natural response to seeing God is worship. The third thing that we see is this, worship isn't just on the agenda in heaven, worship is the agenda in heaven. Okay, do you get that? Worship isn't just on the agenda in heaven, it is the agenda in heaven. We see the four living creatures day and night seeing God and worshiping him. We see the 24 elders hearing the four living creatures and responding rightly as well. Worship isn't just on the agenda, it is the agenda. I just want you to think about this real quick. What are you looking forward to about heaven? What is it that you are really looking forward to? Some of you would say, I don't know that I am looking forward to it. And honestly, I don't, 
I hope I don't die until I get to experience this or this. I, I hope that Jesus doesn't come back before this day party or before I get married and get to do married things or because, you know, whatever, you know you're, what you think, whatever it is. You're not ready to go. But if I were to ask you, what, what do you get excited about heaven? Maybe it's that you're, you're excited to be reunited with a loved one. Maybe you're excited to just be done with some of the, the junk you have to deal with in life. Maybe you're excited about no more tears, no more pain, no more heartache, no more death. Maybe that's what you get excited about. Let me just say this, and I want you to hear it, and I just want you to, to identify what your automatic response is to what I say. The reason heaven will be so great is because we will get to spend all of eternity seeing and worshiping Jesus Christ, okay? What's your automatic response to that, okay? Because I'll just be honest. I think about that sometimes, and sometimes if if I'm completely honest with you guys, there's a thought in that where I get a little disappointed. If I'm honest. And if I'm honest, there's times where I I read about the four living creatures who day and night are worshiping God before the throne, and I think, man, doesn't that ever get, like, monotonous? Like, day and night, day and night, doesn't it ever get old? Like, is it kind of like, I would think it's kind of like Christmas morning where there's kind of this big excitement when you get there and you, you kind of experience it, get all the presents, and it's just really exciting. And then as the time goes on, it's just like, okay, this was good, and this isn't just as exciting anymore. And so it's kind of just kind of, it's time to go to the next thing on the agenda and just kind of enjoy being here. And when I realize that, what I realize is that there's a distortion in my thinking. Because again, we were wired to worship. And we were created by Jesus and for Jesus. And so he wired us to worship and he is the all-satisfying one who can truly give us what we want where our worship of him and who he truly is collide bringing fullness of joy. That's why David says in Psalm 1611, we talked about it last week, but he says, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. Now that's what we're all after, right? We all are after fullness of joy. And David says in your presence, if you want fullness of joy, where it's found is in the presence of God. That's where fullness of joy is found. Now, is it possible to be in his presence and then there's fullness of joy and then things get boring? I don't think so because if God is infinitely creative and infinitely beautiful and infinitely majestic, then what that means is all of eternity will not be enough for us to be captivated by who God truly is. So we can say with certainty that in his presence is fullness of joy because when we are in his presence and we see him for who he is, then we naturally worship. And so here's what we have to get our minds around. Fullness of joy isn't found in seeing our loved ones. Fullness of joy is found in worshiping Jesus alongside of our loved ones. Because God is the author of intimate relationships. So when we join together with our loved ones, worshiping our creator, there is fullness of joy. 
Fullness of joy isn't found in the relief of pain. Fullness of joy is found being in the presence of the one who is the healer of the brokenhearted and the great physician. This is what we have to get our minds around. That the greatest part of heaven, the greatest reward is seeing Jesus and worshiping him for all of eternity. Because in his presence is fullness of joy. last thing we see from this passage is in chapter 5. And chapter 5 is going to show us this. And we're just going to get to it real quickly. And we're just going to make one point from it. Chapter 5 shows us this. The heartbeat of worship in heaven is Jesus, the lamb that was slain. So just put it all together God wants us to see him without seeing him. The natural response to seeing him is worship. Worship isn't just on the agenda. Worship is the agenda in heaven. And the heartbeat of our worship in heaven is Jesus, the lamb that was slain. Look at chapter 5 just real quick. Jesus Christ gets his own chapter, his appearance in the throne room says this, and I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one, on the, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. So we see God the Father seated on the throne with a scroll in his right hand. That scroll, we will find out next week, is what includes all of the events, the future events that is going to bring history to a culmination. So all of the future events of how things are going to unfold in this world. And he has the scroll. And then as John looks at him, and a strong angel begins to say, who is worthy to open the scroll? And what that tells us is that God the Father, who has authority over how everything is going to play out, God the Father, in his plans, he plans for someone else to be the one to execute his plans for the future. It says that no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth is able to open the scroll. And it begins to cause a lot of distress in John until one of the elders begins to say to John, do not weep because the lion of Judah has conquered and is worthy to open the scroll. So the one who is worthy of opening the scroll is the one who has conquered. That's the prerequisite for opening the scroll is conquering. And we find that Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, which is a prophecy of the Messiah to come from the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is that Lion who, who has conquered. What has Jesus conquered? Jesus conquered Satan, sin, and death. That's what Jesus conquered. 
Jesus conquered Satan, sin, and death. So he is a lion. You think about what a lion represents. It represents royalty. It represents power and strength. It represents ruling and reigning. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is a powerful, ruling and reigning, royal king. And then John is called to look at the lion and look at what he sees. Verse 6, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So this is fascinating because John turns to see the lion And when he looks to see the lion, he sees the lamb that was slain standing there. And right here, this is so beautiful because I told you on the first night of the series that that the book of Revelation is going to allow us to see Jesus in ways that we don't normally see them. Right here, God is inviting us to see Jesus as the lion-like lamb and as the lamb-like lion. Because yes, Jesus is the ruling and reigning, strong, mighty, powerful lion, yet he is also a lamb who is meek, is quiet, and is submissive, the lamb who was slain. John Piper puts it this way. I love what he says. He says this, Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday like a king on the way to a throne, and he went out of Jerusalem on Good Friday like a lamb on the way to slaughter. He drove out the robbers from the temple. And then at the end of the week, he gave his majestic neck to the knife, and they slaughtered the lion of judge like a sacrificial, the lion of Judah like a sacrificial lamb. So Jesus is a lion, but he's a lamb. And the way that Jesus, the lion, conquered is by being the lamb. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, when the Israelites were in captivity to Egypt, God was going to send the tenth plug upon Egypt where he was going to take out the firstborn in all the land. And he commanded the Israelites to execute the Passover. And so what they did is they slaughtered a lamb and then they took the, the blood of, a, of an unblemished lamb and they painted on the, on the doorposts of their homes so that when God moved throughout the country executing justice, he saw the blood on the doorposts and passed over them. His judgment passed over them. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the Passover lambs, all of the sacrificial lambs to atone for sins. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. And when through faith in Jesus Christ, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, what we are doing is we are taking his blood that was shed on the cross for our sins and we are painting it on the doorpost of our hearts so when God comes in judgment, he will pass over our lives with his judgment. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And what we see right here is the lamb standing. He's not slaughtered on the ground. He is standing because he has conquered. He has conquered. And it says that he he stands. I saw a lamb standing as though he'd been slain with seven horns. That's a symbol of power. And with seven eyes, that is all-encompassing wisdom. Jesus is our lion and lamb. This is our Jesus. 
This is the great paradox. The almighty king overcame all of his enemies as his enemies seemingly overcame him. And so verse 7 tells us this. Look at it real quickly. It says, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Jesus goes and he takes the scroll. God the Father is the one who had authority over how all of the future would play out. Jesus confidently takes it from him to show that Jesus is in control of our destinies. That means Jesus is in control of your destiny. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ is the one who controls your destiny. If we were to go and read the rest of chapter 5, what you would see is the soundtrack of heaven change. And the four living creatures and the 24 elders begin to change the soundtrack, celebrating the lamb that was slain, because it is the heartbeat of worship in heaven. Are you ready to celebrate the lamb that was slain in heaven? You're not ready if you're not ready to celebrate the lamb that was slain here on earth. Have you come to a moment where you have invited him into your life for his blood to cover over the doorpost of your heart? So when judgment comes, his grace, in his grace, he will pass over. I'll close by telling you this. It's interesting, this Christmas, when I think about my son, I saw just this insatiable desire in my son to worship There was this moment where he said, I don't have a favorite toy anymore, Dad. I need a favorite toy in my life. I don't don't have one. And then when Christmas came and all these presents came, there was this anxiousness in him just longing to be satisfied. I could tell that something in him wanted to be satisfied. And so my son would open a present, look at it, put it to the side, and go get another one. Open it, look at it, put it to the side because he went from toy to toy to toy looking for the new thing to worship. And what we saw is that there was nothing that could truly satisfy what only Jesus can satisfy. And so I told Noah, I said, man, I'm kind of glad that there's nothing that will satisfy because what, what you're realizing is that your heart is longing for something that only Jesus can give you. All of these gifts fail. They pale in comparison to the eternal gift that God has given you in Jesus Christ. He and he alone can satisfy. And so maybe you just need to hear what I told to my son. Maybe I just need to say it to you as well. I mean, your heart is longing to be satisfied. Your heart is longing to be satisfied. So you're looking to all these different things, hoping that something will quench your desire for true fulfillment. And you need to know that only Jesus can give you what, you're, what you want. Your mind is longing to be filled. Your soul is longing to be satisfied. Your heart is craving fulfillment. Prepare yourself. Spend your life seeing Jesus and worshiping Jesus in preparation for the day that you will go to eternity and you'll spend eternity seeing him and worshiping him because in his presence is fullness of joy. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, there's just so much from these two chapters. I don't feel like I've done it justice, but I pray that if anything, you just draw us in to see you more clearly, God. Pray that every single person in here would just get a fresh glimpse of you, that they would see you for who you truly are and that it would stir their hearts with worship. God, we all want to experience a lasting satisfaction and we look for it in things that cannot give us what only you can give us, Lord. So God, we just turn to you and we say, Jesus, you are the lion and the lamb. You are the one who has conquered sin and death. And all of creation, all of eternity is pointed at you. The destiny of all of creation hinges on you. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you're seeing for the first time that Jesus is the lion and the lamb, if you're seeing that your destiny hinges upon a relationship with him, doesn't hinge upon... um, church attendance, good behavior. It hinges upon knowing Jesus Christ. If that's you, would you just raise your hand real quick with your eyes closed so we know that you just want to take a step into a relationship with Jesus Christ tonight. If that's you, slip your hand up real quick. I just invite you to pray with me right now and just invite Jesus in. Say, Jesus, I see who you are. I see that you are the one who conquered sin and death for me. Would you come into my life tonight? Would you save me from my sins and would you begin to lead me in a new life? For the rest of us here tonight, this time is yours to worship. I've asked the band to lead us. When I pray and say, man, you're free to go, free to stay. I know some of y'all need to get out of here and get to your next thing. Others of you have the time and just want to spend some time worshiping. If you need someone to pray with you, there'll be people at the back. We'd love to do that. But I'll pray. And then you're free to go, free to stay. Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are and what you've done. We celebrate you. We see you a little bit more clearly tonight. So I pray that that would stir worship in us, God as we prepare to worship you for all of eternity, celebrating that you are the lamb who was slain. You've conquered sin and death for us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.